Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. John, nominal yield versus a rising five-year, five-year break-even gives you a substantial real yield at negative 0.92%. Even with that lift in nominal yields, we've still got a substantial negative real yield. Let's continue the conversation with Mona Mahajan, Alliance Global Investors, U.S. investment strategist. She joins us now. Mona, if you disappeared from the market for the last 10 years and heard us talk about a breakout in Treasury yields of 80 basis points, I think you'd wonder what planet you've just landed on. Mona, 80 basis points. When can we get a real move on Treasuries? <laughs> You know, interestingly, from a percentage perspective, this was a pretty real move. You know, we're, we're now off the lows of 46 basis points from this crisis, back up to 80. Uh, what we're seeing in the markets is pretty consistent here. We talked about weaker dollar, higher treasury yields, higher gold prices. This is a market that's thinking at some point stimulus is going to happen and also perhaps starting to price in over the last few weeks, this democratic sweep idea, uh, where, where in that scenario, you do also get more stimulus, but also more spending. So it does feel like we're on a trajectory. To Lisa's point earlier, how high can it go? Uh, we may not get much more movement from these levels until we see actual, as the Fed says, eyes of inflation. Mona, part of this is the glide path involved. With your computer science background, it's real simple. At some point, there's a kink. At some point, there's a jump condition. Where is that on a 10-year yield? Is it near here, or is it surprisingly much higher? Yeah, you know, we think over time, uh, if, if inflation is, is in the one and a half to two percent range, uh, real GDP growth in the U.S. also probably at some point one and a half, two percent uh, as the actual uh, GDP growth yields should also at some point be in that one and a half to two percent range. Now, of course, we're now emerging from a very deep crisis. Uh, we don't think that type of level happens in the next 12 months or so. But we're putting the ingredients together, certainly for an inflationary environment, or at least for pickup in inflation expectations. Uh, we're keeping rates low. We're adding QE to the system. Growth may be accelerating next year, uh, especially if we get those vaccines, especially if we continue to get stimulus and investment into the economy. And so we are certainly setting up for that pickup in, in inflation, which would lead to a pickup in those yields back to more normal levels. Okay, so pick up in those yields. In the meantime, there are a lot of people saying the reason why yields are rising is because of supply, because of the stimulus, because the U.S. will have to sell trillions and trillions of additional treasuries. Is that the real story here? I'm looking at the total value of negative yielding debt globally. It is close to the all-time high of $17 trillion. Where else are investors going to go for yield other than the United States? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That, that's part of the story as well. And, you know, keep in mind our yield, even here at 80 basis points compared to Europe, Japan, uh, across the globe, uh, still relatively fairly attractive. And of course, this year in particular, Treasury bonds have been one of the best performing asset classes, uh, not only within fixed income, but really across the board, especially since that March 23rd low. So clearly there is this flight to safety, but also this hunt for income. Uh, but to your other, you know, other point of your question, where do people go? Well, they're also looking beyond the fixed income market. Clearly, there, there's been this push for investors to, to go out the risk spectrum. We're seeing that clearly in the U.S. equity markets now more a little bit global EM, uh, but also in parts of higher um, higher risk fixed income as well. Credit markets uh, in, in high yield as well as parts of investment grade. 
Mona, this is a familiar conversation for many. The reflation story that you described just moments ago, fold that into the equity market and the much talked about rotation that has really eluded yeah. us over the last couple of months. Yeah, you know, that's really the key question here. Uh, will we get over the next 12 month period this much anticipated and, and much alluded over the last 10 years rotation into this value cyclical trade. Um, clearly, and when we looked historically over the last 10 years, there have been approximately four instances where value cyclicals have led in a more sustained way. And, and that time period, usually they're leading for a six to 12 month period over that those four instances. Um, we think we could be set up over the next 12 month period for another leadership in value cyclicals. And of course, um, that would be uh, in the scenario where we get the vaccines in the, the latter half of this year. Of course, it takes some time to manufacture and distribute, but markets will start pricing that in sooner. Uh, of course, we'll get that reacceleration, hopefully in growth, not only in the U.S., but globally. And so in that backdrop, combined with ongoing low rates and ongoing stimulus, uh, we do see a potential for that value cyclical trade to reemerge. And so we think investors should layer that in over the next, you know, when they get the opportunity over the next few weeks. Mona, there's all these tea leaves out here. There was Procter & Gamble the other day, and right now there's Nestle coming out. And once again, organic revenue growth, you know, it's not a big deal, but it's just simply better than the gloom that's out there. Is that the major call for the next two or three years that we're, you know, with the shock of the pandemic and the agony of the pandemic, Manchester shut down as uh, just one example. Are we completely misjudging the ability of these companies to adjust and to adapt? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think uh, last quarter, second quarter, we certainly got um, a lot of that as well. You know, the expectation was, you know, something for a negative 40% decline, and we came out, you know, negative 28, 29% or so. So there was a huge lowering of the bar in terms of expectations, and there was a, a nice beat. You know, historically, companies are known to do that, keep the bar low, but the, the percentage of beat was much more substantial than we've seen in the past. Uh, that could be the trend over the next couple of quarters. Although we will say, you know, over time, that probably goes back to more historic averages where it's a three to five percent beat on average. Um, but to your point, I do think that that in many cases, you know, companies have performed uh, much better in this crisis than we've seen in the past. And, and partly that's because we've become a more digital, more online economy. You know, this uh, acceleration to a more stay at home world has really benefited uh, certain companies and, and really has helped a lot of companies across the board. And so I, I do think. Uh, the ability for consumers to to buy online and, and to, to show demand in that way has helped. And so we do think this quarter will certainly see a nice speed as well. And over time, it'll be more normalized. But we see the ability for companies to rebound nicely over the next 12 months. Mona, thank you. Always great to catch up. Mona Mahajan Thank there. you, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is the interview of the day on fixed income. Kevin Giddes is with Raymond James and critically important. He comes off a trading platform where he understands suddenly the bid slips away in fixed income. Kevin Giddes is the bid slipping away on price in full faith and credit. Well, you know, Tom, we're finally starting to see this. I, I, you know, a week ago, I would have said probably not, but we are starting to see this period, uh, closer and closer to the election, especially if we get this blue wave that I talked about, because, you know, I have these um, kind of nightmarish feelings of 2016 after the elections. If you're a bond guy, you did not expect the outcome and you did not expect the price action after the election. So 
I think the bond market and the treasury market in particular is underestimating the fact that if you got this blue wave or a complete sweep, what might occur after that and why interest rates uh, are, are likely to go higher, not lower, should that occur. So, you know, higher spending, more taxes, um, increased growth, and growth tends to have a friend. Uh, it's called inflation. And if all of those hit the mark, then yes, uh, rate moves would be fairly significant, especially in the 10-year and 30-year out for uh, the balance of the year. So at 1 p.m. today, uh, Tom Keene is going to be closely watching the 20-year auction of treasuries. I know he watches every auction very carefully. Is this a supply story in terms of higher yields going forward, or is it, as you said, a growth and inflation story? Well, I think from a rate move, it would be a growth and inflation story. I, we really haven't had a problem selling our debt. And, and you guys have mentioned it earlier in the show about negative yields in particular. And you look across the globe, where are the opportunities? There still is a great opportunity in treasuries, especially in the long end of the market. But that the door is starting to close. And the only way it does close is if we get a blue wave. If we get whatever they call a blue tide or whatever you want to call it, where you still uh, Republicans control the Senate, and even if you got a Democrat or a Republican in the White House, the rates aren't going to move that much. I think we're, we're going to be, you know, we, we know what gridlock looks like. But if you get a, a kind of a clean sweep, um, I, I think the Treasury market would have to catch up fast, which was, you know, higher rates across the board. But I don't think it, it hurts financing right now. Kevin, you mentioned 2016, and it wasn't just the political event that was unexpected for many. It was the outcome of that political event that people missed, what the red wave would mean for markets. What do you think people are missing right now, Kevin? Be specific. We know the consensus. People think a blue wave increasingly. The probability is lifted over the last couple of months. What is it you think people are missing about what that means? Yeah, the, the, the part that they're missing is the inflation part of the occurrence. Um, 2016, if you remember, we went from a 180-10 year the day before the election to a, almost a 250 by the end of the year on the expectation of deregulation and tax cuts and growth. And that what was anticipated was that inflation component that really never came. We did see it um, when, the, when the GDP peaked uh, in the first quarter of 2018, and then inflation reached its highest point in May of 2018. The, the point of this is now is they're not thinking about it in the, in the ways that you would normally think about it, is that growth will bring that inflation at some point in time. It may not be in the next few months, but the bond market tends to try to get out in front of any uncertainty. And I think we're starting to see that now. I think we'll see it uh, for the next few months through the election. So, Kevin, how would you push this view through fixed income right now? Where's the misprice that you want to take advantage of? It's, uh, you know, John, it's really still hard to find. But um, one of the things that are really going either way, this goes, uh, the uh, tax free mini market is likely going to gain. If, if the prospect of higher taxes is going to support that market, uh, an uncertain or continued environment is probably going to support that market. It, we're still at 121 percent uh, tax free yields to the 10 year versus where we were at 75 percent in the pre crisis period. So I still think. Um, that even though a lot of um, uh, state, county, municipal credits are coming to market now, there is value in the muni market now, no matter who takes the White House and who actually owns the uh, Congress. Uh, Kevin, long ago and far away, we had a Monroe trader where we could enjoy price declines. You and I have hallways of people that say the bond market never has a bear market. Can you model out a bear market to come price down and yield up off of my Monroe trader calculations? I always said that when my Monroe trader stopped working, it was the end of my career. So I still have a couple nope. of them around. 
Kevin, that's when you bought a Bloomberg. Thank you. And Mike thanks you this morning. Are we heading for a bear market in bonds? So we have the potential for it, uh, Tom, but really the, the, the only way we're going to see a bear market in bonds is if we see this big blue wave um, occur at election time, in my opinion. The rest of it looks like um, we will get increased uh, stimulus at some point in time. We, we think that may be inflationary somewhere down the road, but we're still making up a lot of ground from what's happened during the pandemic, and we still have the pandemic to deal with. So I, I don't think it's extremely bearish unless we get this scenario play out in a blue wave uh, after the election. So the reflation trade that you're talking about, this idea of higher growth, has led a lot of people to feel safe or safer going into the riskiest bonds. And this morning I was looking at the spreads, the extra yields that investors demand to own the riskiest junk bonds over benchmark rates. It has contracted back to February levels. We are trading at about the average of last year. It is as if the pandemic did not happen. Is this market right that we are not going to necessarily get an escalating default cycle? Is that what this market is saying, or is it saying something else? Well, at least it, it's saying that, but I'm not sure it fully realizes that that may not occur. So I think, as you point out, I mean, we are almost to the to the pre-crisis spread levels and certainly high grade in IG uh, corporate debt and almost there again on um, high yield in particular. And, and that's a sector I would be very, very careful with right now because, you know, 290, 300 over the tens for high yield is not enough of a cushion for me based on where I think we're headed. So I think even, even so, let's say nothing happens or nothing changes, you know, less than 300 for high yield is, is expensive uh, purchase for a portfolio for me. I still would favor high, uh, IG debt, but realize you're gonna get it at less than 100 basis points. And you have to be happy with that. So even if we get higher yields, spreads would tend to contract even further, but you would get paid a higher yield uh, versus uh, where the treasury is now. So I, I just think that the, it's an expensive opportunity uh, to take on that additional risk in fixed income. Kevin, you live and breathe this world. I just wonder from the conversations you've been having over the last few months, do you sense there's a little bit too much confidence in credit because of the Fed backstop? Yeah, there it really is, John. I think that there's um, a point here where um, we're going to see a lot more bankruptcies because uh, they, they just have to occur, if, especially if you don't get stimulus within this calendar year. Uh, that is going to have an effect um, on credits themselves. But the offsetting uh, opportunity, and you're seeing this a lot, even high yield companies, even the state of Illinois are coming in and, and refinancing their debt at much lower yields, building mm -hmm. cash positions, and they may see this, uh, they may be able to ride the storm out without seeing uh, as many right. bankruptcies as some are expecting. On Bloomberg Radio, on Bloomberg Television, Kevin Giddes with us. And for those of you on radio, one of the cool things that Kevin Giddes is the Cincinnati Reds memorabilia <laughs> behind him uh, at Shea Giddes. Kevin Giddes, we just lost Joe Morgan. Bill James says Joe Morgan was better than the giant Rogers Hornsby. What did Joe Morgan mean to your Cincinnati Reds? Well, if you remember, and it goes way back, we got him got him from the uh, Houston Astros uh, at that time, and it really filled the the void, especially at, on second base, um, for the Reds and the Big Red Machine at that time. So the impact that Joe Morgan had on both the organization and afterwards um, was long lasting, and we we were fortunate uh, that he associates himself or he did associate himself with the Reds versus the Astros. Kevin, just a final question from me, just to end on a more positive note. Can you give us a review of what you would think of a player like Mookie Betts and oh why goodness. a team like the Red Sox would, would let him go? 
<laughs> He's killing me, Kevin. <laughs> Uh, well, I've become uh, by default a bigger Dodgers fan than I would admit, and, and I'm just happy that they have Mookie Betts. Oh, but I go didn't realize away. cut this you guy off. Go back before the Reds won a title in '90, the Dodgers haven't won one since '88, so they've actually been suffering along with us. Even though so, so you're telling Betts. me Mookie Betts is the Joe Morgan of the Dodgers? That's what you're saying, Kevin? Well, for a very short period of time, we'll let that play out over a number of years. Oh, we will. Thank you. <laughs> Kevin Giddis and Raymond Jackson oh, get to do this for God, a number of years. Killing me. <laughs> Beautiful. This is a joy, particularly 13 days out in the middle of this historic election. Wendy Schiller is at Brown University and is too modest to mention that she is part of the new fifth edition of the great definitive Gateways to Democracy. It is without question the one volume, 700 page, throw it at the kids and say, shut up and read a textbook on this American politics. And we're thrilled she could join us uh, today from Brown. In the fifth edition, Wendy, or maybe in the sixth edition, to come, you have to write about mail-in voting. What will you say? Well, the world changed in 2020 for American elections, right? We have close to 83 million people have asked for mail-in ballots. It's about, you know, one, at least one-third more than in previous elections. And they're returning them. And guess what? They're getting to the boards of elections. They're getting registered. They're getting verified. And they're getting counted. So the big crisis of that has not yet emerged in what we're seeing. And at least 37 million of those votes have already been cast, both in person and by mail. This changes everything about how we vote. It will probably lead to a higher vote turnout this year and in subsequent years, and it, it makes for a more engaged public. It, from a business, educational, political standpoint, you want people to be engaged. If you don't want your tax dollars wasted, you want people to be engaged. If they can vote more easily, they'll be more engaged. So I think this is a big factor coming out of 2020. Yeah, but one of the problems is you had a Brown PhD student a couple years ago who wrote 400 pages on Mayor Daley, 1960, <laughs> and JFK stealing the election. How do we get away from that thinking? Well, I mean, the thinking that people will steal it, I think that's a hard thing, right? That's been ingrained, as you well know, as you know your history, ever since we basically started with these sort of protected elections called the Australian ballot in, in about the 1880s, everybody's been worried about that. But so far, you have a lot of county boards, both Republican, Democrat areas of the country that are counting votes and aren't losing them yet. So we have to go through that. Now, whether you reject a ballot because the signature isn't right or something's wrong with it, that's really locally controlled. And that will be the point of contention if this turns out to be a close race. Wendy, given the success of mail-in ballots, is there any talk about shifting to, I don't know, an electronic method of voting, considering that we are in 2020 and the world is digital? Lisa, that's a great question, but I think there's still some big distrust about hacking, particularly since that's made a, a big focal point in terms of the Russian hacking, the Chinese hacking, American hacking. You know, thinking about hacking a machine, people are still worried about that. I don't know if American voters are, are interested in trusting that to the point of giving up this sort of ritual of filling out a ballot and, and handing it in and signing it and showing identification. I'm not sure anyone's willing to move there, you know, in the next decade. Decade. But uh, I think that just the fact that we, we get more engaged, just the fact that we realize it should be easy to vote, that's a huge difference. And I think that comes out of a lot of discontent with the system on all sides of the political spectrum. 
just want to run through these headlines coming from White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows yeah. speaking to Fox News in the last so couple of minutes. Plans to talk to the Senate Republicans and Pelosi staff members on relief talks. Still a number of issues to work on. And the main issue, the biggest issue remains still state, local and government aid. And, Tom, that has been the issue yeah, that's the only for, I issue. think, the last three yeah. months. Yeah. Totally agree on John. I think uh, Mr. Meadows is is dead on. Wendy Schiller, there it is, but it's just not Democrats, cities, and government. Is the president and others paying it? Isn't it true that there are so-called Republicans, states, and cities and towns that will be affected if they don't act? Of course, places like Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, everybody's experienced a surge. Everybody's had to spend a lot more money. Even educational systems have to spend more money to reconfigure their classrooms. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of need across the country. But the cynical view in me says that McConnell's looking at 2022. He's looking at his people. He's got a good year looking at 2022 for the Republicans. If they lose the Senate this year, barely, they'll get it back or they'll try to in 2022. If you add $2 more trillion to the deficit, then you got Republicans running on a $4 trillion deficit, which isn't a good look for them. So I suspect he feels like he can forego this and start looking at 2022 pretty much the day after Election Day. And that's, to me, why he's holding out. It's not just that he can't get the votes. I think he could. I think they think this is something they don't want to have to defend going into another election cycle where they could do well in 2022. Wendy, if they were to pass a fiscal support bill ahead of the election, would that make President Trump look good? Of course, it'll make President Trump look good, Lisa. That's a really good point. It also makes uh, Pelosi look good, make Mnuchin look good, and McConnell, if he if he relents, looks good. But it, it, to me, the checks don't go out with Trump's name on it, quote unquote. A lot of it's direct deposit, but this is a metaphor. So getting credit for it, when now by the end of the weekend, 50 to 60 million votes have already been cast. The marginal utility of this bill to Trump shrinks every day that they wait, which is why Pelosi kind of finagled and sat on it and stalled, knowing that so many votes will have already been cast. I think she realizes he may get a bump, but it's not going to be as big as they got this bill done a month ago. Wendy, just quickly and finally, on the Senate, you said everybody would look good. Are there any candidates in the Senate that are worried about passing this bill because being a fiscal hawk is still attractive to a certain part of this electorate? Yeah, I think the bulk of the Republican GOP Senate caucus uh, all of them. They don't want to get primary. They're always worried about primary. Even if the Trump factor goes away, if he loses, there's still going to be a primary because people realize you can upend incumbents in primaries. We've been seeing that for about four to six years now in an active way. They're worried about getting primary on deficit spending. And so if McConnell's looking ahead, this is what he's most concerned about. This is why he's taking the gamble that it won't pay off for them now. The ones that are going to lose are already going to lose. Let's look forward to 2022. Wendy Schiller, thank you. Brown University Chair of Political Science. John Mackey is misunderstood. Yes, he sold Whole Foods to Mr. Bezos for more than a gajillion dollars. But what he really did was completely invent a culture from Safer Way a zillion years ago, literally a vegan co-op, and I believe it was Austin off of UT. He built it into a juggernaut that changed everything in food in America. David Rubenstein, peer-to-peer conversations for the Carlisle Group, had the privilege of talking to this truly original executive. David, what did you learn original from John Mackey? Well, he's a very contented person. Um, He is not as wealthy as somebody might think he would be from having started this incredible company, but he's wealthy by any normal human standards. 
but he doesn't care about money pretty really uh this is his life he doesn't have he's married but no children and this uh, company is his, is his child and as he likes to say he sold off his daughter to the wealthiest man in the world well, he sold them off to Amazon, and, you know, we all see the changes, those of us that darken the uh, doors of whole paycheck. But, David, what is so important here are the processes he put in place around a core strategic belief. How did he do that? Well, he's a person who really believed in the value of organic and healthy foods, and so it was easy for him to pr uh, promote that because he really truly believed it. And ultimately, it turned out a lot of other Americans did as well. Uh, what he's done with Amazon, though, is Amazon has improved the technology dramatically, he would admit. And also, during the COVID period, the online sales have been much higher than they would have otherwise been. Um, he has uh, said he's going to do this for a couple more years, but he doesn't know how much longer. Uh, he's a content person. Uh, you know, sometimes you get CEOs and founders who are still not happy with their life and so forth. He's a very happy person. I think he spoke for all of us, though, when he said that 2020 is the weirdest year of my life. Why did he say that? Well, because uh, he's had to retool the entire company. Uh, it used to be that uh, people came in for the shopping experience and walked in the aisles, and now they have to focus more on getting people to have pickup there because people don't want to walk in the aisles so much because of COVID. So it, he had to reinvent uh, a bit the business, but still, and he has more competition than he used to have. When he's, he had virtually no competition, he said, for the first 25 years. He's been the CEO for 42 years, and for 25 of those, there wasn't that much competition. Now. The major supermarkets are all having whole food kind of uh, aisles and other kinds of organic food displays, and he has more competition than he ever had. There's a question about his contentedness with the sale to Amazon, especially in light of the increasing scrutiny around big tech and monopolies consolidation. Did he give an alternate view that was believable to you? of the possible benefits to consolidation at a time when people are bemoaning the concentration of wealth and market share among the biggest companies in America? Look, when you marry off your daughter, you're always saying, is this person going to be good enough for your daughter? And so he's always saying, well, did I make the right decision? But in the end, I think he's content with it because Amazon has helped him in many ways. On the other hand, they've imposed some constraints that he might not be completely happy with. He would say he's 98% happy. Uh, David, Which is pretty good for a merger. Uh, David, it's widely understood that at the panels you and I have done in Davos, you've always wanted a mute button to shut me up. We're going to have a debate tomorrow night with some mute buttons. What is your prescription for your candidate, Vice President Biden, to survive Thursday to get to the election? Well, I don't have a candidate. I'm an independent, and I don't give money to either candidate, just to be clear. But on the other hand, I would say... Um, I don't think the debate can change that many votes at this point. I'd be very surprised. I've been involved in debates over the years, and they have marginal impact. And so unless somebody does something outrageous, I don't think it'll have uh, a big impact. So the main thing I think Biden has to do is just not make a mistake. And the thing that Trump has to do is not do the kind of things he did before. Whether he can do that or not, I don't know. The mute button will have some impact. But, you know, you can talk over a mute button, too. I, I, I look, go ahead, Lisa, please. No, that's news to you. You can talk over the mute button. That'll be helpful. Go on. Tom, carry on. You know, I look, David, at, at this moment that we're in, in a country moving forward, and part of it for so many people is the inefficiencies or harm of capitalism. Defend the system. Well, capitalism is the, as Churchill would have said, in effect, the worst system of all except for all the others. So capitalism has a lot of income inequality that's built into it because the people at the bottom don't do as well. 
On the other hand, it's created more wealth for more people around the world than any other economic system. So very few people are rushing to leave capitalist systems to go to communist systems or socialist systems. The immigration in the United States is pretty heavy. The emigration is very modest. How will the outcome of this election affect your investments, if at all? I mean, we make a long-term investment, so it's hard to say. Uh, in the end, I suspect that the economy will probably have some uh, slowdown period of time in the next year or two. It, it's probably due for that. Uh, in the end, I don't think the tax policies uh, are going to change all that much, no matter who's president, because Congress is probably not going to move dramatically on things. I do think the most important factor right now over the next six months is having an economic stimulus package, because it's clear that the last stimulus package is wearing off. We don't have a stimulus package in the next couple months. Mm -hmm. I think you'll see much higher unemployment rates and much lower growth rates. David Rubenstein, thank you so much. Greatly appreciated. An interview with John Mackey, the founder, inventor of what we call Whole Foods and indeed organic uh, as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.